This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. Media bias certainly does exist, but could it be that the quick turn to the left in the media has as much to do with market forces and business models as it does with those biases? What happens when, say, the New York Times is making more money from online subscribers than from people who actually read the paper paper itself? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, the book Pop Goes Religion, and a column for Acton Institute's Religion and Liberty Journal titled The Evolving Religion of Journalism. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. You have a very interesting quote in your piece for Acton, a former New York Times executive stating that the Times is, quote, a business wrapped around a church. What does that mean? Well, people have used language for a long time referring to journalism as a kind of religion. I remember sojourners in a piece that I quoted in my graduate project at the University of Illinois long ago. Sojourners referred to that in journalism, you move the rock to uncover the dirt, and in preaching, you move the dirt to uncover the rock. But both of these are communications processes in which people are trying to get to what they consider to be the truth. I've been following the debates about the time, as as our listeners probably know. Some people, I'm accused all the time of being obsessed with the times. I would say I'm more obsessed with the role that the times plays in kind of the filtering system of American journalism and what determines gets into the news. I think you've heard me say before that I think the New York Times is one of the two most important newsrooms in the world. And the other one, because when you look at the world as a global media system, the other one would be BBC, would be the other one. But anyway, he's he's referring to the fact that the Times has doctrines. And its doctrines shape its coverage. And the whole point of this essay that I wrote for the Acton Institute um, journal, I was focusing on the fact that now there are other forces at play that are kind of determining how the media and how journalists go about their business. The whole point of this was something that's been rumbling around in my head now for four or five years, and writing this piece was almost like, you know, an self-exorcism of some sort, to get this out of my head and get it expressed. Writing this essay woke me up at two or three in the morning, day after day after day after day, as I was trying to work through what it was I wanted to say. And the whole point was I was trying to get past our familiar discussions of media bias and move on to why media bias now makes financial sense. Why biased 
news coverage is now good business. And once you understand that it's good business, and that good business is rooted in technological changes that are all around us. In fact, most of our listeners probably have their hand on one of the agents of this change at the moment they're listening to this, either in the form of a computer, an iPad, or a smartphone. Once you get into the digital screen economy, now it makes sense that what's happening in our news media is happening. But back to your original statement about the Times being a business wrapped around a church, the church was a reference to doctrine. And I think one of the moments when I went over the edge in focusing on these questions came right about the time we started Get Religion when a New York University journalism professor named Jay Rosen published a press think article online in what would become known as blogs and he published a piece called journalism is itself a religion a theological investigation and what he was really looking for was he was trying to answer the question why do journalists do what they do and among that is his decision to question concepts of objectivity very clearly something he's continued to do for years. He's kind of ahead of the curve on that. But in the midst of this article, Journalism is Itself a Religion, he made a reference to one of my own religion columns in which I had interviewed a former New York Daily News reporter named William Proctor, and he wrote a book called The Gospel According to the New York Times. And he's also a Harvard Law School graduate. He's a brilliant man who's written many, many books. And in the book, he dealt with the fact that people think that the press is opposed to religion. How many times have you heard me say that in our discussions? People wrongly think that the press is opposed to religion or is biased against religion. When it's not, it just isn't. It's prejudiced against certain forms of religion. So... In the Acton piece, I noted that Rosen quoted the following from my column, referring to Proctor. Critics are wrong if they claim that the New York Times is a bastion of secularism. In its own way, the newspaper is crusading to reform society and even to convert wayward fundamentalists. Thus, when listing the deadly sins that are opposed by the Times, Proctor deliberately did not claim that it rejects religious faith. Instead, he said the world's most influential newspaper condemns the sin of religious certainty. Rosen coined the phrase, which then plays a major role in this essay, the orthodoxy of forbidding all orthodoxies. There are no absolute truths except the absolute truth that there are no absolute truths. We can go around and debates about this for hours. But the point he was making is, at some point, journalists have to take a stand on what they believe and how that will affect the journalism that they do. And he was saying that at that point, people were already growing uncertain with this need to try to do accurate, fair, informed coverage of people on both sides 
of the issues that were affecting America because, frankly, they don't think half of America is smart or sane or worth listening to. And Rosen pointed to a piece from New York Times Magazine by a reporter named Dave Samuels who was writing about an anti-abortion activist who had gone over the edge into violence. And, of course, he equated that man with the pro-life movement in general. But then David Samuels wrote a sentence I've quoted many times. It is a shared, if unspoken, premise of the world that most of us inhabit, that absolutes do not exist, and that people who claim to have found them are crazy. Now, he's not quoting anyone. He's just stating that himself. And the key is that the world in which we inhibit, most of us inhibit, is probably a reference to the New York Times newsroom. So once again, a long answer to your question. But the fact is that the piece is looking for the changing religious faith of the New York Times and how that reflects technological and financial changes going on around us today in the Internet world. And the thesis is that such goes the Times, there goes journalism for the most part, in different ways on different sides of the political spectrum. But the move toward opinion-framed journalism, I think, is at this point here to stay. Terry, I'm curious about another quote that you include, this one from Marvin Alasky, formerly of World Magazine. He says, we appear to have entered an age in which readers will have to treat newsrooms like political parties. When I read that, I said to myself, Marvin, they already are. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, but he's saying we need to do it consciously. That's at the very end of the essay when he, we're trying to kind of deal with what replaces our debates about media bias. In other words, if, if the press has given up on objectivity, and objectivity, by the way, is a term I've never been all that fond of in the sense that I think people tend to get into arguments about it in a kind of philosophical manner, like do we think it's possible for journalists to go into a story with their brains serving as a kind of blank slate? And I don't think anybody believes that, but if, if you look at the history of the term and when it originated in what most historians would call the American model of the press, it was a reference to needing to approach journalism work with a set of standards, professional skills and standards that helped you try to balance what people were saying and let the public know what was going on in the debates that most shape our culture. In other words, it was an attempt to get objective professional standards, not some sort of idealistic belief about journalists not caring about the issues or not having beliefs about the issues. You were supposed to be committed to the religion, to go back to Jay Rosen's term, the religion of journalism, which was based on these professional concepts of balance, accuracy, fairness, treating people in public debates with respect, etc. And so it's what we're facing now is evidence that those standards have gone, have vanished, that now journalists are much less interested in treating everyone involved in public life with a sense of balance, fairness. And we can probably, Marvin notes at one point, that to even use a term like accurate 
or accuracy. You need to believe in some sort of absolute truth, that it's possible to write information that is accurate. Or do you have your accuracy and I have my accuracy and they don't have to agree because all of our beliefs are true in some sense, at which point then what matters is who controls the printing press. The old saying that freedom of the press belongs to people who own one is extremely true in whatever age of journalism you want to talk about. The people who run the newsroom in the end will get to set the standards that guide it. The question my, my essay addresses is what's changing the newsroom? Other than things like the 60s and the sexual revolution and all that other stuff, newsrooms like to make money if they possibly can. They would prefer to have profit margins they can show their stockholders. So we must assume that right now a lot of newsrooms think that they're trying to make money and think that what they're doing is the best way to make money. And at that point, we then need to talk about the religion of the press, to use James Rosen's phrase again. We have to look at, at what it used to stress, which is what people, in, when I was growing up in newsrooms and people talked about the separation of church and state, that was a phrase that in terms of journalism, they used to refer to the divisions between the advertising and financial side of the newspaper. In other words, no matter what happens, there was to be a wall of separation between what advertisers wanted and what the journalist produced as fair, balanced, accurate reporting. Well, what I mentioned in the article is, well, okay, what happens now? If big tech, if Facebook and Google and the other giants, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, if the giants of big tech now control 80 to 85% of all advertising revenues, and all of that money has been sucked out of the system, the business model that produces journalism, what has replaced advertising? What Marvin is saying is that if we're going to be transparent about what shapes our journalism, we have to decide what is the economic force that has replaced the role of advertising in the newsroom. And the evidence is that the New York Times and elsewhere that customers, paying customers, are now the most powerful force affecting journalism. That the goal of journalism today is to keep your paying readers happy. And you do that by telling them what they want to hear telling them that they're right, telling them that their causes are right, telling them that their enemies are stupid or, at the very least, evil, bad, misinformed. Maybe we can rearrange those adjectives into a different hierarchy if I had a chance to think about it more. But you get my point. Keep the readers happy. And the barometer for elite newsrooms has, in the past, until the evil libertarian Elon Musk came along, has been Twitter. The famous statement that Twitter has become the functional editor of the New York Times that the old school liberal Barry Weiss wrote as she resigned at the paper 
in a battle over whether or not you could put conservative views on the op-ed page on critical issues. And thus a female, openly gay, New York Times reporter and First Amendment liberal became a hero of conservatism, at which point, what does the word conservatism mean? Well, I'm rambling again, but there's your point. Marvin is saying, how do we study the biases of readers? How do we figure out the role that readers are playing in the editorial process? If readers are the new advertisers, the people who produce the money that funds the creation of news, what happens to news when your primary goal is to make your readers happy? Do not tell them anything that distresses them or makes them angry. We can see that that's now something that exists on both the political and cultural right as well as the left. The problem is because of conservatives' hatred of journalism for decades, which I've, I've lived my life in Christian schools and universities trying to advocate people going into journalism as a worthy vocation and calling in this world. But most cultural and religious conservatives have had a long distrust or even hatred of journalism. So to no one's surprise, the high ground in the American news business, and the high ground at that point becomes the New York Times, the Washington Post, National Public Radio, the major networks, we shouldn't be surprised that they're all based in deep blue liberal zip codes of America and that most of the people who choose to work there are not cultural conservatives or even people who think cultural conservatives deserve a fair shake. So the subscribers have replaced advertisers and that has begun, it's actually the business model has worked beautifully for the New York Times. Their subscribing revenue has outpaced their print revenue incalculably. So they're sticking with that. It's going to spread to the rest of American media. If as goes the New York Times, so goes the rest of American media. What do does a guy like me do if I still want to get both sides of the story? Okay, we'll get to that in half a second. But back to your, the point you were making, the Columbia Journalism Review, one of the Bibles of New York City journalism thinking, the Columbia Journalism Review has just published a massive, it's a small book, a massive piece about the clashes between Donald Trump and the mainstream press. And I don't want to get into a conversation about Donald Trump and our political age. But what's important is that Columbia Journalism Review in that article includes the exact financial process that I'm talking about. That essentially, the more the New York Times published pieces attacking Donald Trump based on anonymous sources and sources that have since been discredited and, and drove the whole Trump and Russia narrative, the more they did that, the more subscribers they gained all across the country. And then they get a Pulitzer Prize. You think they're gonna stop? You think they're gonna question the accuracy of their reporting when it's making them millions of dollars and winning them the expressed praise of their peers? So 
this isn't just my essay. There's a lot of conversation about this right now. And I would urge people to seek out that Columbia Journalism Review mini book that's been published online by a Pulitzer winning reporter with New York Times background named Jeff Girth. And don't read it because you're interested so much in Trump or, or read it if you are. The point is read it if you want to understand what's happening and the business model of the American press. So Terry, I, as a morning ritual, usually early every morning, will turn on National Public Radio. I understand the bias that exists there, but I want to hear both sides of the story. And then a little later in my day, I'll listen to a little conservative talk radio because I want to hear the other side of the story. What do I do if the American model of the press is evolving into the European model of the press? I'm going to have to make the American model of the press for myself, aren't I? Yeah, sort of. And, and that gets us to the the last thing I said in this long, long essay for the Acton Institute. Marvin Olasky says that if the new standard for journalism is not objectivity, but it's transparency, which is being open about what's shaping the news that you publish, he doesn't think at this point that the mainstream press wants to be transparent about its biases at all, because they don't want to drive off any potential readers. And besides, they don't think they're biased. They think they're just simply right. They think their information is accurate in their view of accuracy. And they think in many cases that the other side doesn't deserve coverage because that would just be putting incorrect information into the public square. So at the very end of this, I said something, and I, and I must admit, I was thinking when I wrote this paragraph, I was thinking about the Issues Etc. conference that I spoke at long ago, before COVID, when over and over and over after my talk, people asked me the exact question you're asking right now. What are we supposed to do? And that leads me to the final paragraph of the piece, the sobering bottom line. When seeking journalism they can trust, perhaps even news that offers balanced, accurate coverage of views other than their own. American citizens are on their own as they search the World Wide Web. God help them. Now, if you'll think back to that day outside St. Louis, I told the Issues Etc. conference attenders that the whole issue was whether they actually wanted to get outside of the digital silo that they probably have created in online media that tells them what they want to hear. The question is, to what degree do you want to get outside of it? Well, I suggested at that time, I asked people to raise their hands if they were on Twitter, if I remember correctly. I think I did that. I asked them that they needed to start using Twitter in a way that saved them time instead of wasted their time, and that they create a Twitter account in which they deliberately chose about 20 voices, maybe 25 at most, 20 news sources and writers and thinkers, journalists, authors, pick about 20 to 25 people that they believe they can trust to some degree based on their reading them over the years. 
and deliberately pick out some liberals. I recommended Andrew Sullivan, for example, as someone that they should follow carefully. Barry Weiss had not emerged at that point, but I certainly would have mentioned her at this point, especially since she's now trying to start a news publication called The Free Press, which basically is dedicated to publishing things that nobody else wants you to read. And this has led to some breakthrough material on issues related to gender dysphoria, free speech, and a host of other things. So people would want to follow the free press. And I recommended very highly they follow my friend David French. Well, David French was already controversial at that point. He's a lot more controversial today. And now, lo and behold, he's joined the op-ed page of the New York Times, which now has two legitimate cultural and religious conservatives on the page with him and Ross Douthat. Whatever you think of David's evolving politics in the American world right now, the key is that he is definitely a cultural conservative and a First Amendment liberal who has spent his whole career defending the free speech rights of religious conservatives, among others. So anyway, I recommended that people try to create this Twitter feed. And the goal is you're interested in finding writers who are reading the material that you need to know more about. In effect, you're casting a digital net out there. And you're going to see articles that these people are reading. You're going to say, this article is terrible. This article is wonderful. This is a must read. This is what you've got to read today. And you're going to begin to create kind of an ecosphere, challenging and complex voices that can help serve this is a really complex mixed metaphor here. You're trying to create a lens through which you can look at the press. And you've got to get some people in that group that you're, it's not so much that you're uncomfortable with them, it's that you disagree with them on a lot of things, but you have found them to be interesting, challenging, accurate sources of information and people who can point you toward it. People like Abigail Schreier and Barry Weiss are liberals in every sense of the word today, but they're now considered conservatives because they're saying things that whatever the new left can be called, the new left doesn't want you to hear it. So I would stand by exactly what I said that day at the Issues Etc. conference and urge you to do that sort of approach to Twitter. You have a personal anecdote that you'd like to share? What is it? Yeah. Years ago, when I was in grad school at the University of Illinois, I took a class on the impact of the printing press on our world. And the famous historian James Carey, who died a number of years ago, he taught at Urbana, and he was most famous for his work at Columbia School of Journalism in New York City. And James Carey taught this class, and he used the printing press as a prism, as a way of looking at the impact of technology on our culture. We didn't realize that elsewhere in the building, the internet was pretty much being dreamed up at that moment, or at least internet browsers. But Kerry walked in the first day of class. We were all like scared of this guy, he's a legend. He walked in, he sat on the front of the desk, and he looked out at us and said, would the Protestant Reformation have ever happened without movable type? And then he walked out of the room. That's all he said on the first day of class. 
which of course did exactly what he wanted to do. It created a fierce debate between us. But what is he talking about? Why did he ask that question? And he knew that a lot of things influenced Luther and the Protestant Reformation, you know, in terms of the German city-states and economics and politics and a lot of things. But would the Protestant Reformation have happened without movable type? How does Luther circulate the letters from the Pope without movable type? How do you have sola scriptura without people having their own Bibles? How do you have the Protestant concept of the priesthood of the believer if people can't read things from themselves and try to make up their own minds? Well, by the end of that class, he was beginning to hint at what was coming with the Internet. And basically what my essay is saying is what he said in that class a thousand times. Technology shapes content. The technology through which we communicate has a way of shaping the contents of that communication. So what we're seeing right now with journalism is the technology of the Internet, which more than anything divides us into small camps that tells us what we want to hear and lets us hear more information about the things we already believe, dividing us into smaller and smaller and smaller niche audiences. That's the technology that's currently shaping American life, American news, tragically American politics, as we saw with arguments about COVID vaccines and stuff, it's shaping what's happening in our pews and in our pulpits. This is the new technological reality, and technology shapes content. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's founder and editor of Get Religion, author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate, the book Pop Goes Religion, and a column for the Acton Institute's Religion and Liberty Journal titled The Evolving Religion of Journalism. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.